We are now at number six out of the seven churches that we see in this particular passage in the Bible. Uh, If you've been journeying with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been uh, taking one of these messages that Jesus gives to the churches. We've been taking one every week. And uh, whilst there is a bit of a uh, theme through some of them, the theme of suffering and struggling as a church, there's a variety um, of different things that Jesus, the risen, glorified Lord Jesus, says to each individual church, the seven of them, and that sort of form a bit of a, um, a pathway on a major road in Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. And so we come today to the church of Philadelphia. And there's a lot of ways that we can understand this particular passage, but the way we're going to look at it tonight is by sort of chopping it in half, really. And the first half when we read the verses and try and understand what they say, we can say, number one, that Christ's people are strong because he alone holds the keys. Christ's people are strong because he alone holds the keys. The second thing we can say, and we'll see this in the second half of the sermon, is our future reality changes our present outlook. Our future reality changes our present outlook. So number one, Christ's people are strong because he alone holds the keys. I don't know if you uh, picked it up as we went through uh, the the reading there, but it seems to be that we are dealing here with a church called Philadelphia, in a city called Philadelphia, a church that is weak. That seems to be pretty obvious as you you go through. Um, We we, we see a a similar kind of thing uh, in in other churches, uh, a church that is weak and sort of beleaguered and under fire, whether it's from the majority non-Christian culture out there, whether it's from the imperial Roman religions out there pressing in on the churches. We see that already. We don't know exactly what it is that makes Philadelphia weak, but like other churches, it is a church that is struggling to survive. Look down in verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. But then he says later on, I know you have little power. See, externally, it seems to be that this church in Philadelphia is nothing much to look at. They, They are not impressive at all. They have no power. They have no influence. They have no voice in their city. They have no clout. People don't look to them for their opinion. In fact, people don't care what they think. In fact, most often they probably just see them as a, a pointless group. Maybe they don't even know they exist. I know that you are weak, says Jesus. Which may not be the most encouraging thing you can say to someone uh, in that position. But indeed, Jesus, who has eyes, we saw this a few weeks ago, eyes of blazing fire, looks in at the church and sees things exactly as he is and he gives them the status update. And he says, I know you've got little power. This is a weak church. We get some more clues about the source of their weakness or the source of their struggle as we go through. Uh, We see down there in verse 9, Jesus talks about the synagogue of Satan. Those who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. You know, it was a fairly popular phenomena in the early church in the first few centuries, in fact, but particularly in the time that we're seeing here towards AD 90, towards the end of the first century, those Jews who heard the good news of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who who turned to him in faith, who became Christians, Jewish Christians, there was a phenomenon of those Jewish Christians being thrown out 
excommunicated from the synagogues that were dotted around the ancient Near East. It seems to be that traditional Jews who did not subscribe to the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, threw out of the synagogues anyone who did believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so, because of Jesus' language here in in verse 9, the synagogue of Satan, we saw them again, uh, for those of you who were here, back in the church of Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan who, who lie, slander. Most likely, a proportion of the church in Philadelphia were thrown out, excommunicated from the synagogues because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their Christian faith. There's every good chance that these traditional Jews, according to Jesus, they're called the synagogue of Satan, they're not real Jews, they lie. These traditional Jews probably thought of themselves in their synagogues as the gatekeepers to true religion. And they thought they were doing the right thing by removing this heretical sect called Christians, removing them from their Jewish synagogues because of their teaching. It's wrong, it's pathetic, this Jesus who was killed on a cross, you're telling me that's the Messiah? So they didn't like that, they didn't want that as part of their, their uh, religious worship, so they removed these Christians from the synagogue. Most likely they saw themselves as gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. They were effectively trying to bar the kingdom of God from Christians. You can't come to our synagogues. You can't come to the kingdom of God because of your belief in this Jewish Messiah, in, in, in this Jesus of Nazareth. And so you can imagine, can't you, the effect that could have on the Christian church. Those, particularly from a Jewish background, being thrown out of the synagogues, being told that they cannot access the kingdom of God. Their views are ignorant, they're heretical. And so at times such as this, these Christians, some of them anyway, need to hear a revelation from Jesus. Because all they are hearing are the words, the lies from the synagogue of Satan, from these traditional Jews who are barring them from the kingdom or trying to do that. They need a revelation of Jesus to overcome, to enter into the lies that they are listening to. So what does Jesus say to this weak church who are being condemned and slandered by this Jewish community? Well, first of all, Jesus introduces himself, as we've seen week after week, at the beginning of the message, and he gives a slightly different introduction depending on the issues going on within the church and so he introduces himself in verse 7 he says to the angel of the church in philadelphia write this these are the words you're about to hear of the holy one the true one the one who has the key of david who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one will open what you have here church is a message from the holy one the true one these are words that are applied to God himself. Jesus is saying, I am God. I have the, the rights and the responsibilities. I can say this to you. I also have the key of David. Uh, for those of you who aren't particularly familiar with, with the significance of that, you know, the, the, from the Old Testament, uh, we see that God uh, goes into a promise or a covenant with the son of with David, King David, centuries before. And he says, I will always have a a son of King David on the throne. My kingdom will always be presided over by a son of David forever. And so whoever has the key of David, whoever has uh, the key to the access of the kingdom, if you like, has complete control over the kingdom. 
And so here we have Jesus who is saying, I'm the Holy One, I'm the True One, I speak words of truth, I have the key of David. I decide who is in and who is out of my kingdom, says Jesus. I open the door, no one can shut it, I shut it, no one can open it. I get to choose who comes into the kingdom. The synagogue cannot change it, the religious leaders cannot change it, those who tell lies against you cannot change it. In fact, they are the weak ones. I get to decide, I'm the king, I'm the Holy One of Israel. And looking around the church, they feel incredibly weak. They have listened to these lies week on week, year on year. They have shrunken in their influence. They're told they're pointless. And in fact, according to the revelation of Jesus that we have in this text, this church that feels so shrunken and small and insignificant, in fact, according to Jesus, they are strong. They have power. They just can't see it. Jesus says later on in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, he says one day, I will make them come and lie before you, uh, lie, sorry, bow down before you, before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. One day, Jesus says, these liars, those who are externally Jewish, but internally their hearts are hard towards me, I will make them come and bow down before you, and they will know who's in charge. Um, there is a great little scene in the classic Disney film, The Lion King, which explains what Jesus is, or points to what Jesus is talking about here. I don't know if you're familiar with The Lion King at all, um, but there's a scene where the little Lion King called Simba and his friend Nala uh, are, are running away from a group of hyenas that want to tear them apart. They want to, to get the two little lion cubs on their own. And so they dash uh, Simba and Nala, the two little lions, dash up the, the hill into a, into a cave. And of course, the hyenas, this, this pack of hyenas, go in after them. There's no way out, they're trapped. And so, faced with nothing but, there's no way out. The little uh, lion king, Simba, let, tries to let out a roar, but as he does so, he's only a little cub, he lets out this pathetic little cry. A little meow from a cat, and of course the hyenas start laughing. They just think this is ridiculous. But then he tries again, and this time it seems to be that the roar out of this lion cub sends shivers down the spines of the hyenas. It seems to be that the entire cave was filled with the roar of a kingly lion. But then as the, the camera, if you like, swings around, you realize it's not the little lion cub that is roaring, but it is the king. It is his father, Mufasa, the, the great king of the jungle who roars. The cubs by themselves were weak, but they became strong because of the roar of the king. And in the same way, that is what Jesus here is saying to the church. You are weak externally. There is nothing about you, but yet because the king is behind you, you are strong. Maybe you can identify somewhere along the line with this sense of, of weakness. Maybe you can sense somehow in your life as a Christian, perhaps you have 
been receiving lies about yourself from some enemy or other. Maybe like the little lion cubs, you have found yourself in a position in life where something or someone is about to pounce on you and seek to tear you apart. Maybe you can identify with the church in these verses. You are struggling somehow to hold on. You are struggling against the lies that you are being told. You're being told that you're weak and you're powerless. Perhaps you're a minority Christian in your office at work. Maybe you are a minority Christian in your family. Maybe you are the only believer in Jesus in your entire family. Maybe you feel like the timid lion cubs backed up against the wall, ready to be torn apart by these hyenas. But the word that we have here from the risen, glorified Jesus is that when we are in him, when Christ the King is behind us, then we are powerful. Then the roar of the Lion of Judah shouts out and gives us strength against our enemies. Because Jesus, as we read the Bible, we realize that Jesus has set open the door to the kingdom. Others will try and tell you this has not happened. They will lie and slander you because of your faith. But because of Jesus and what he has done for us on our part, going to the cross, giving his life, opening the door so that you and I and everyone else who puts faith in him can come into the kingdom. We have it on his authority that we are strong because he alone holds the keys. Christ's people are strong because he alone holds the keys. The second thing we see in this, this text is this, number two. Our future reality changes our present outlook. Our future reality changes our present outlook. Currently, for those who, are, who trust in Jesus Christ, who are believers in Jesus, you have power, you are not weak. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He takes it up a notch or two because he points to a future that is even greater for you and I and every Christian to look forward to. He encourages the church and therefore those of us today with this word. He says our future reality changes our present outlook. He says down in verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast on the basis of the fact that I have the keys and I decide who is in and who is out. And I have opened the door to you because of my body and blood on the cross. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to that crown, says Jesus in verse 11. Do not give up the faith. Do not turn away. This crown uh, that he's talking about here in verse 11, uh, the, Greek, the Greek word is stephanos, which uh, is where we get our name Stephen from, or Stephanie, or if that's where it comes from. The victor's crown. It doesn't, uh, it translates as crown in our, in our Bibles today, but in actual fact, um, it's, it's kind of a crown, but it points more to a victor's wreath. I don't know if you're watching the, uh, the World Championships in Athletics over the last uh, weekend. 
but if you win or come second or third, you get a, you get a medal, precious metal, you know, gold if you win, or bronze or, or silver, whatever. Uh, but in the ancient Greek games, particularly in the ancient Greek Olympics, you didn't get a, a medal per se. You got a victor's wreath, kind of a crown-shaped thing, usually made out of leaves. Um, possibly wasn't worth a lot uh, materially, but there's only one of those and it got given to the winner. It was a crown of great honor uh, that you have overcome. You have beat the opposition. You have come across the finishing line. And so the wreath, the crown, was given to the winner. And so Jesus is saying here, hold on. Don't let it slip off your head. Don't let someone come and take it away from you. The prize is in your hands. It's within your grasp. Don't give up. And then he gives this promise, this great sort of promise in verse 12 and 13. If you stretch forward to the prize, if you pass the finishing line, if you win, then this is what I promise you. He says in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. God promises to the church who overcome, despite the lies, despite the pressures, despite their perceived weakness and the lack of influence, I will make you, says Jesus, a pillar, a permanent fixture in my presence. I will make you powerful where you feel powerless i will make you immovable where you feel like you're about to get swept away you will live forever in my glorious presence it is difficult for us to comprehend how good this will be in the presence of god there is fullness of joy there is total satisfaction there is an end to all suffering and badness there is nothing but wholeness and completion and joy and love and i will make you a pillar so that you can receive that eternally. Not only will you be made a pillar, but you will have the threefold name of God written on you. The name of God itself, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven, and my own new name. We're not talking here about the kind of stamp you get on the back of your wrist when you go into a nightclub. We are talking about the name that is chiseled into you that is immovable that cannot be rubbed off the night after this is an identity that you will be given that cannot be removed you'll be citizens of the new Jerusalem and you'll be named with the name of Christ that hasn't even been named in human hearing before Just underlining again and again the permanence, the power that shall be given to those who overcome. I don't know if you remember back in 2013, there was this huge typhoon that swept across Southeast Asia, uh, particularly devastating in the country of the Philippines. It's called Typhoon Haiyan, and uh, it still remains the most intense tropical cyclone on record. 7,000 people died as a result, in the early stages at the very least, as a result of the ter terrible 
devastation of Typhoon Haiyan. 1.9 million people were made homeless as a result of Typhoon Haiyan. That is more than the population of Northern Ireland, homeless practically overnight. $2.86 billion worth of damage was done. Houses were simply lifted up and thrown into the sea. Lives were wrecked, families torn apart. One of the reasons why there was such devastation so quickly was the houses and the buildings that the people lived in were so utterly flimsy. They weren't at all ready to face up to the winds, the intense tropical cyclone that was coming their way, made up of bits of corrugated iron and a few bricks and plastic sheeting. These are very poor people. How the country would have wished for stronger structures, stronger houses, so that they may face the storm, so that when the winds came, they would be safe against the battering of Typhoon Haiyan. But this safety, this security, this immovability is what Jesus promises to the church that overcomes. The church that we read about here in Revelation 3 is being buffeted by the lies of the synagogue of Satan by those outsiders speaking down to them. They are being destroyed by the, the typhoon from the synagogue of Satan. Their doubts are increasing. They are weakened as people. The force of the hurricane is relentless against the church. The believers feel like they're being reduced to a pile of bricks and wood. They feel like they are, are being led to becoming a shell, completely empty, unable to stand. And yet, Jesus says here, you are strong. You shall be pillars in the presence of my God. You shall have the name of God and Jesus Christ written on you. No one can take that away from you. That is something that is guaranteed and promised to you now, says Jesus to the weakened church. And the good news, the great news, is that that same promise that same grace is offered to us today too. The one who conquers can look forward to nothing but an immovable presence in the very glory of God. No longer will you be defined by weakness. Instead, you will be defined by your glorious future. For those in Jesus Christ who trust him, that what he did on the cross applies to you, you will be owned by God. You will be citizens of a new Jerusalem. You will have the name of Christ upon you. Maybe you can identify with this sense of battering. Maybe somehow along the lines you've been suffering for your faith may not be in the same way that we read about in other countries, other Christians suffering for their faith, but maybe you have felt your level of persecution from the mocking that you get at work or from family members, being frozen out of social circles you used to walk in, 
because of your Christian faith. People refusing to do business with you because you're one of them. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe your struggle is not so much in sort of terms of persecution. Maybe your struggle is more emotional or psychological. Maybe you're someone who, from time to time, struggles with depression or anxiety. Maybe you're someone right now who is dealing with grief, the loss of a loved one. Maybe your struggle is more physical. Maybe you're suffering physically with various symptoms. Your life consists of going to the doctors over and over again. Maybe your suffering is more spiritual in nature. Maybe you struggle with lukewarm faith. You wish you were more on fire for Jesus than you actually are. And yet you feel the battering that the church is experiencing just here. Maybe you're thinking of quitting altogether. If you can identify with any of these varieties of suffering and struggling and weakness, then listen to the word of God in Revelation chapter 3. You are not defined by your current struggles. The lies, the hardships, the weaknesses, you are not defined by those things. But you are defined by your glorious future that Jesus lays out. The Holy One, the True One, the One who holds the keys of David, the One who opens the door by His body and His blood. You are not defined by your current struggles. You will be a pillar in the house of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you notice in verse 10, Jesus does not promise to take away our struggles, our hardships, but he does promise to protect us through them. That's why he says to the church, hold fast, keep going, push through. The encouragement to this church and others that we've seen already is not that I'm going to remove your suffering overnight, but that I will give you the grace to survive, the grace to hold firm, and I will lay before you the promises of the gospel for you to hang on to. The great and glorious future that you have will define your current reality. You see, the more we grasp onto these promises that Jesus gives us, the more power we will discover in this life. The more stable we will become. The less shakable we seem to be, the more we grasp the promises of what Jesus has for us. And when we discover this glorious future that is open to every believer in Christ, that gives us new strength. That gives us deeper roots. That means that one day we can weather the storm with a new power and a new poise. Despite opposition, we will stand firm in Christ. Let me say this as we close. The winds and the storms of hardships will come and go 
for every one of us. But these shall fall into insignificance before Christ one day. When Jesus makes what is unseen, seen. When this glorious future that he promises becomes our actual reality. When one day Jesus will look at every believer in the eye and say, welcome home, good and faithful servants. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.